had someone to love me, someone to call me their own. Oh, I wish I had someone to live with, cause I'm tired of living Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one small slice of American writing, drawing my texts from the wonderful Library of America. Now, um, in this episode, we are we are still looking at uh, Dry- Theodore Dreiser's novel, An American Tragedy. This will be part eight. So if, you have, if you're just joining us, I urge you to go back and listen to my previous episode. Um, sections um the, the the story though surrounds the the murder of a young woman roberta alden who was pregnant by clyde griffiths um now it's a little bit you know, how much it was intentional how much it was an accidental is something that comes up in the trial and something that is is a little bit ambiguous in the text um it's based on a real murder trial uh, that took place in 1906 that led to the conviction and execution of of um, Chester Gillette, uh, a young man. It's very much drawn from life. A lot of the letters that are described here, a lot of the scenes are drawn right from the 1906 case. Dreiser just retells it in in the 1920s setting uh, with with fictionalized characters, and then he's able to introduce a lot of the pathos and and the the internal monologues and the deep um, investigation of society and social orders and social systems that we know that we're used to getting from naturalist fiction from the from the early 20th century um, this particular episode will cover chapters uh, book three of an american tragedy it's a very long novel 900 pages broke up into three books but this will cover book three chapters 19 to 25 which if you have the library of america version of this book it's 723 to about 841. Um, it's a little bit longer than what I normally cover. I normally try to stick to around 100 pages for each episode. But this section really covers the trial, right? It's uh, kind of, in many ways, the climax of the novel. What follows is more a denouement, where Clyde is simply on death row waiting for his execution, and then there's like the failed appeal and stuff like that, but it's all kind of inevitable. This trial is wonderfully described it's it's really the first time i've ever seen a trial this sharply written uh, in literature in fact i can't even think of any other writer that i've ever come across that has spent so much time on a trial over 100 pages describing witness after witness describing testimony at length in great detail it's 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 long it's in depth it's it's full of tension and anxiety and we see the all the stuff we're used to seeing in cultural representations of, of trials, such as the, the lawyer standing up and asking for objections, the feeling you, uh, a, def- a, a defendant may get that the judge is against him, always ruling against him, the machinations of the lawyers, the secret witnesses or the threats of secret witnesses, the new evidence that gets popped up, the dramatic cross-examination, all this stuff is... In this book, and in fact, this section—it's—it's it's lo- as long as many novels, right? It's—it's it's 120 pages or so, covering this trial. And there are novels that are that long, right? In my previous series, I looked at 
like old pioneers which is only about 100 pages this is almost something you could pull out and and film and it would be dramatic and exciting and interesting now i don't know if trials are that way or is it just a special function of the of the dramatic trial of the age and that's something i talked a little bit about in the previous episode and i just want to bring it up again I, you know every era seems to have and i don't know what i mean by era here if it's every decade or every five years or every generation there's a trial that defines that era it's sometimes they're celebrity trials often they're trials that just become infamous and become well known because it touches something in american life at the time and i think it's a function of maybe democracies where you do have you know media playing a role in the criminal justice system by commenting on trials prosecuting people in the court of public opinion if you will but it, it seems every generation has this kind of thing right Dreiser, of course, is referring to one of these cases when he writes this novel, the 1906 trial of Chester Gillette, which exposes like the class conflict of the era and exposes the the sexual uh, hypocrisy of the time. Then in the 1920s, you have the Scopes Monkey trial and you have the Scar the, the Scottsboro uh, trial, for instance, in the in the 30s. And then you have I'm trying to think of ones off the top of my head. In more recent era days, it's it's the O.J. Simpson trial, or more rec- even more recently, the Bill Cosby trial. These these um, events define the anxieties of the public, right? So take the Scopes Monkey trial, for instance. That is about evolution. It was at a time of rising religious fundamentalism in America. It was as, as a time of also rising urbanization and growing cultural conflicts between the urban and the rural in America, between the Christian and and perhaps the non-Christian or the growing atheist community, between the Protestant and the Catholic with the rise of new immigration, bringing in many Catholics who maybe have different views of, of natural history. All of these come to head in this dramatic trial that, that caught the attention of, of America, right? And exposed what's the central conflict of, the, of that time. And a good historian could go through you know, each era and find the trial that does that, the trial that really sparks the imagination of of the people and that's the kind of trial we have here we have a trial that gets right to the heart of what's ailing america at the time the anxiety is about class the the feeling that the working class is being victimized by the bourgeoisie by the ruling class right a, a supervisor from an elite family not rich himself necessarily but that doesn't really matter in this case seduces a young farm girl an innocent farm girl right her innocence how, how much, like we talked about this in previous episodes, she was, she was DTF to a degree. I mean, she had to overcome certain moral resistance as she worked on a relationship with Clyde and she got deeper into it. But there's a lot of sexual chemistry in that, in that relationship. But nevertheless, it doesn't matter. In the public opinion, she was an innocent farm girl who got seduced by... A, f- a factory supervisor who then abandons her once she gets pregnant for a rich, pretty woman. Not referred to, you know, and then they don't even name this other woman because they want to protect an elite family. The politics behind the trial, right? The conflict between the Republican and the Democratic Party in upstate New York. The the fact that the district attorney was running for a judgeship and actually wins the judgeship in the midst of the trial is, is part of the context of this. The And then the... The, the kind of mini sexual revolution that's taking place at the turn of the century with urbanization, it caused 
the very anxieties that led to things like the urban mission movement, the thing that Clyde Griffith's parents were part of. It he was, you know, that urban life that that that's diverse, that's mobile, it's liquid. People can move around. There's new public amusements, right? There's sensational literature talking about white slavery and prostitution, and there's and and there's literature that's racy and presenting the city as a place of of pleasure and excitement and and liberty and libertarian like libertinism is the word i'm looking for all of this and then you have the christian response to this which is we need to come in we need to re-christianize the city which has fallen right the 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 fact that there was kind of a sexual revolution in the early 20th century epitomized perhaps by the flapper or the charity girl and the the, the working class woman who maybe doesn't have enough money to enjoy the cornucopia of public amusements, you know, treats, you know, gets involved in treating with, with young men. That becomes, it's a common thing, right? But at the same time, the moral pressure to marry before having kids, the, the stigma that people placed on single mothers, all of this is part of the trial, even if it's not spe- specifically stated by the lawyers, right? at any time. It's all part of the story. It's all part of what is prosecuting Clyde Griffith. And as guilty as he is, and as much moral responsibility as he bears, <clears throat> he is still like a victim, like he's been, he's a scapegoat for the sins of a generation almost. And I th- really think that's what uh, Dreiser is getting at. Through all the pathos, through all the anxiety and the tension and the drama of the trial, it comes down to you know, Americans' values, the changing American values being investigated and, and resisted, right? By pro- convicting Clyde Griffith, the jury, and by, by extension America, can purge itself of, of its sins. And that's, I think that's where we're at. And, and I think that's part of the function that these, these, trials, these trials place. And sometimes when it doesn't work, like with the Rodney King verdict, right? When, when the the narrative of, of the decades of police brutality and police violence finally uh, come and are actually confronted in in the court of law, and then the public, the jury, acquits the police officers in sense saying we're not going to confront this part of our, our of our past. We're not. We're, we're we're going to let it go. And then the streets explode. You know that that. It has, you know, this this resolution of these tensions and conflicts must come one way or another, right? And it's it's interesting how the judicial system becomes a way of doing that. I mean, that may be not the best way, but it's better than a lynching. It's better than a riot. It's it's better than a revolution, I suppose. So, you know, and we can see. T- take a look at the Me Too movement, right? You know, Harvey Weinstein is going to trial pretty soon, as I'm recording this. Bill Cosby's already been, you know put on trial for for his crimes these you know this has this started a movement that has forced america to come to terms with its sexism its 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 patriarchal hierarchies and workplaces its its rape culture as some feminists would call it all these things get get put on trial alongside these these men and i think they're they're important moments and they're things that we as historians as people who who read literature and think about writing uh should should ponder and, and that's that's what i get out of this now all that aside though this is just such a wonderful 
description of a trial. It's just, I never thought a trial could be this exciting and, and keep you on your toes. And you know the outcome. The outcome is kind of pre-written for you. It's predetermined. Yet there's still so much um, angst. And, you know, you go back and forth, right? You hear the prosecution's case and you're like, yeah, that's that sounds right. Then you hear the defense case and you're like, yeah, I, I, I buy that Clyde Griffith changed his mind or I buy that, you know, all these things in his background and his his world led him to this fate. I, I understand his he, that he's faded. Then you get the cross-examination and you're reminded of all the mistakes and the foolishness and the recklessness of Clyde. And then you're on the jury side again when, when they choose to convict. And then in the final part of the novel, you're in death row and you you feel for him once again and... and and you feel the terror and the horror of the chair. It, it's it's so well done. I love the end of this this novel. It's it's beautiful stuff, really. Um, so <clears throat> what's going on in this trial, anyways? I'm not gonna get into the details. There's supposed to be like over a hundred witnesses. I I think at one point it's mentioned there's like 140 something some witnesses. Um, not all of them are recorded here, and and often Dreiser just says there was a bunch of witnesses on this or that, but. You know, the prosecution had, you know, everyone that interacted with Clyde Griffith on his trip, his fateful trip. People, other people we knew, right? People who knew had any connection to this relationship were put on the, the stand. Roberta became a witness herself. The victim becomes a witness by her letters, which get read to the jury in brutal detail. You know, showing her suicidal thoughts, showing her her desperation for just the briefest amount of tension from Clyde, the, the, this, her pleading for just a telegram or a letter saying, you know, I'm considering marrying you. That her, her hopefulness when she finally does make this meeting, all this stuff is in the letters. The, her threats, her, her frustration are in the letters too. It, it's so wonderfully put together actually. But there's a lot of witnesses. And, you know, whatever witnesses there are, Roberta's a witness too. She's put on the stage as best that the prosecution can. It's a brilliantly detailed case. Mason was leaving nothing to chance when he, when he put Clyde Griffith on trial, to be sure. So we get witness after witness as the prosecution built its case. And then when the defense gets its turn to respond, they... They focus on Clyde Griffith's moral cowardice. They 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 prosecute him as a moral failure. They they buy into the public sexual anxieties, right? They they condemn him openly. And now this is the common trick, I suppose, to say he's a bad person. He's done bad things, but he's not a criminal, right? Um, there's a difference between being uh, more a moral failure and being a criminal, right? And once they admit that. You know, then you kind of can set that aside, right? And actually, the prosecution says that's a pretty brilliant strategy on the defense's part because by saying, we grant you that this guy's a piece of crap, but that doesn't mean he's a criminal, right? He still tried to do the right thing at the end of the day when it mattered, um, but he failed. He, you know, he didn't, he was still a coward and he couldn't, you know, but there's no law against cowardice, right? You're, and his, but to make this case, they have to put Clyde on the on the stand. So they put him on the stand for I think a couple days, where he goes through every event, and he's been rehearsed like for months. The lawyers have been meeting with him in the jail, going over what he has to say, 
rehearsing rehearsal after rehearsal of what it's to say. So it's a perfectly displayed testimony. Clyde Griffith does everything right, everything that can be expected to be done. He does. And, you know, he goes point after point. He does everything the lawyers asked him to do. And as you know, what happens is once you put a, someone on the stand, the other side can cross-examine. And you get this cross-examination of Masons, where he then systematically breaks down Clyde's case with documents, with letters, with uh, circumstantial evidence, you know, piled on circumstantial evidence. But it all has the effect of exposing Clyde as a liar. Uh, there's especially this series of folders that they had access to that show, you know, that things were planned in advance, that that it was him in, in those places. Even the money, even they're able to go and question him point by point on how much money he brought with them and how much he spent at each place and how much money he would have had and, and how could he have ever, you know, he never, never, never enough, enough money to actually pursue what his original intention he claims to be was to marry her, right? That, that's what the defense was, that he, this was essentially a honeymoon and he was going to marry her. But then why didn't he have more money, right? There wasn't enough cash to actually pull off what he said he was intending to do. And that shows him that he was planning that, that trip to end at the lake. Um, so you get this, the breakdown of his case point by point. And again, it's just so interesting and powerful and it just leaps out of the page at you. Some, some of the strongest, I think, parts of this novel, in my opinion, especially if you like high drama. I mean, there, there's like a lot of little drama in the earlier parts of the novel with the romance and the tension between the characters and Clyde's like uh, anxieties and his feelings of frustration, his feelings of uh, anxiety over his social status, all that stuff is good drama, but it all like reaches this, this pinnacle in this trial. And anyway, so after the cross-examination, there's not much more to be said. There's a few more witnesses for both sides, a few more character witnesses for Clyde, a few more, you know, rebuttal witnesses for the prosecution. And then uh, the trial's over, the jury goes to deliberate, and it doesn't take them long to come back with a unanimous guilty plea, a guilty um, verdict. Clyde's lawyers pull the jury, so you get one by one the jurors declaring their feeling that Clyde is guilty of first-degree murder and should be killed, right? That, that's something overhanging the whole trial, is that a, a guilty verdict is a, is a death sentence. And something the, the prosecutors continue to remind the, the jury. They, and then, as always, just, just like you'd expect, you, you have the moment where the lawyers turn to Clyde and say, don't worry, don't worry, we're going to appeal. They don't have a case. We'll get them. You know, the, the appeal will get them. This trial was was all wrong in all ways. It's something you, I suppose, everyone gets told by their lawyers after a guilty verdict. And then he, and that's it. He writes his mom a telegram saying, I've been convicted. And and that's that's the end of, of the story of Clyde, at least as a, as a free man. I think I'm actually getting ahead of myself because looking ahead, that's actually... Um, in chapters like 26, 27, where we get the verdict and everything. So it, it's just a trial. And I'm not going to say more, too much more about it um, because I've been talking about this novel for so long, it seems, um, so many episodes. And you've been sharing uh, my, you know, sharing this time with, 
with me and I really appreciate it. So I'm not going to try to take too much of your time. I want to save like my final thoughts for the final episode where I'm going to talk about the, the final days of, of Clyde Griffith and what Dreiser does with them. Because again, it's really wonderful stuff. It's all denouement because everything is kind of inevitable at this point, but it's really great stuff. And there's some like scenes that really jump off the page as well, just like in the trial. But a wonderful trial scene, a, a wonderful little section. Well, it's 100 pages, so it's not little, but a, a wonderful section of, of literary courtroom drama. Right? If you like the Law & Order stuff, if you like dramatizations of, of, of criminal trials, which a lot of people obviously do, this is this is a place to look. I don't know of any other books that do this before this, right? I'm like again, I'm sure there was popular literature and there was there was um, you know, there's trials in Shakespeare even. So you know, it's not the first time this happens, I'm sure, but I've can't think of any earlier novel by an American that that does this in such detail and, and with such dramatic power. Again, I'm sure it's there, but you know, I've I've only read a small fraction of, of American novels. Um but anyways, that, that does it for part eight of my series on Theodore Dreiser's American Tragedy. I'll be back shortly with my final thoughts, and the, look, we'll look at the final pages of, of this wonderful novel. So as always, thanks for listening. If you have your own comments, please leave them below or send me an email. It, uh, the email address is 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, and as always, thanks for listening. See you next time. Oh,